Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Welcome to SwissCast I'm your host, Brother Suhaib Webb Today's an incredible show Sitting down with the one and only Dr. Khadr Kayyoun Lawyer, activist, critical race theorist Talking about a lot of things that pertain to America in general and The American Muslim community in particular SwissCast, check it out We're going to jump right into the interview And make sure you get his new book American Islamophobia Available everywhere finished the book and it's it's excellent um, from from just the perspective of the guy that's working on the front lines of the Dawa frontiers um, you know from that vantage point it's it's really interesting and I think what I wanted to talk to you about is how you kind of offer a different definition of Islamophobia and if you could kind of share that with the audience and talk about why that definition is important yeah, definitely. So I, I break down the definition of Islamophobia um, in effectively three dimensions. You have, you know, structural Islamophobia, which is state-sponsored Islamophobia, and we see that through a range of laws and policies like the Patriot Act after uh, the 9-11 terror attacks, or more recently with uh, the travel bans, the three renditions of the travel bans. So structural Islamophobia is focusing on, in on what the state is doing in terms of you know, carrying forward this uh, idea that Muslim identity is tied to terrorism. The second dimension is uh, a dimension we're all familiar with, private Islamophobia. It's the, the animus, the hate, the fear, the violence that's inflicted by private individuals or actors that are not tied to the state, or at least not directly tied to the state. Um, and we see that through the form of, uh, you know, individuals attacking or vandalizing masajid, uh, attacks on visible Muslims or individuals mistaken to be Muslims. Uh, and we see it really tragically, as I write in the book, with the uh, the murder of the three students, uh, uh, Dia, uh, Razan, and Yusor down in North Carolina a couple mm. of years back. Mm. Mm. Um, and then finally, we have the third dimension, which sort of ties the two, which is dialectical Islamophobia. And I think this is the most sort of critical uh, segment of the definition because it ties what the state is doing to what's happening on the ground. The idea behind dialectical Islamophobia is if the state is effectively endorsing this presumption that Muslim identity is tied to terrorism or homegrown radicalization hmm. by way of law, and we're, you know, as citizens, we're, we're instructed to obey the law, then that's effectively legitimizing uh, these negative, uh, you know, vile stereotypes that are held by individuals on the ground. So the state endorses and authorizes the private violence we see coming from private actors, whether they be, uh, you know, white supremacists or whether they be individuals who are just, you know, frightened of Islam for some reason. Uh, and those are the three parts, the components of the definition that I offer in the book. And why do you one of the things I, I gathered from reading is why do you feel that it's problematic to, for example, compartmentalize that definition? I see people tend to focus on Trump. Uh, as kind of this iconic figure of Islamophobia, maybe someone like Frank Gaffney, Daniel Pipes. Um, yeah. You mentioned the movie, I think, Sniper, American Sniper. Um, mm -hmm. But you kind of treat these as like, and correct me if, wrong, if I'm wrong, like they're symptoms of a structural presumption that Islam and Muslims are somehow presupposed to violence and radical behavior. So, so is it dangerous? And I think it is problematic uh, to compartmentalize Islamophobia 
while ignoring kind of that structural reality? Yes, yeah, so the greatest danger, I think, in much of the discourse with the rise of uh, Islamophobia as we know it today as a popular sort of animus and form of bigotry is if we tie it to closely to, you know, one caricature and especially, you know, kind of a, an aberrational character like a Trump, then the idea or the presumption is once Trump is gone, Islamophobia is no longer a problem, mm. right? If we tie it to any, you know, individual or a private character, then the idea is that, you know, as soon as that character or that administration is no longer in office or in place, then we've resolved this problem. So I think it's key to sort of like lead with a definition and a framing of Islamophobia that ties it to what the state is doing. Um, and to sort of break this sort of idea that Islamophobia is something that's specifically coming from, um, you know, a vile emanation of the right, which we see with uh, whether it be the Tea Party or obviously the rise of Trump. But also something that's pervaded also democratic administrations like the Obama administration, obviously. Uh, and we see it very specifically being advanced by a war on ter terror programming championed by Obama, like counter radicalization. CVE. Exactly, CVE. So, so, so he, sorry, go ahead. No, so what's critical to see Islamophobia as not only a, a structural system, but one that actually predates the war on terror moment and definitely something that predates uh, the rise of Trump. Most definitely. And you, you talk about kind of the legal history, um, the naturalization process that Muslims were kept out of uh, for a number of years. You mentioned how I believe, uh, correct me, his name is George, his name is Shisham. Yeah, George Shisham, a Lebanese immigrant. Right. Who, who has to basically remind the judge that he's not Muslim. Yep. And then gets gets naturalized. And, and, yeah. and there's been this kind of legal animus uh, towards Islam and Muslims. And if you could kind of talk about the history of that animus, because I found that absolutely riveting. Um, I think that oftentimes I see communities wanting to go back to a time in America when everything was gravy. But your book shows, no, that these are outcomes of a of process and a system that have been there. Um, and it, there, there was no great day when everything worked out well for people of color who were Muslims. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's why the, the, the subtitle for the book is The Roots, because the roots of Islamophobia are really longstanding. They're centuries old. Uh, they predate sort of flashpoints that we tie or that we tie and we think are associated with the rise of Islamophobia, specifically the 9-11 terror attacks. Right. If you read most uh, works from scholars or uh, the viewpoints from pundits or even activists, they kind of look at the 9-11 terror attacks and the aftermath of that as the the birth of Islamophobia, if you will, right? Mm. Um, but that isn't the case. If you look at what was happening um, during the, the formative moments of this country's history, uh, is that Islam was always oriented and always positioned as being the antithesis of American citizenship. So we, we understand racial construction, generally speaking, is tied to how somebody looks, right? Mm. Uh, physical complexion or phenotype. But in the American experience, it's always been far, far more than that. Religion has played a central role in uh, the construction of racial identity. Uh, and because Islam was sort of oriented as being the antithesis of Christianity, and specifically Protestantism during the early stages or ages uh, of this country's history, um, a whole host of people who are presumed to be Muslim, including Arab Christians like George Shisham, uh, the individual you bring up who's mentioned in the book, um, it wasn't enough 
up until the last second that he identified as Christian because the presumption is just as long as you come from the Arab world, just as long as you come from this region we, we classify as the Orient, then the idea, the immediate idea is that you're Muslim and not Muslim by, by virtue of religion, but Islam at that juncture was understood to be a race, a civilization, a political ideology. And we see these iterations of Islam still sort of resonating today and being trumpeted um, from the right by politicians. Mm, mm. And, and I think another salient point that you touch on, and I sent you, uh, I believe, the essay by Lloyd, um, yeah. where he touches on the fact that sometimes a post-racial, post-religious Obama America, in, in his vantage point, is, is used to excuse, say, um, black liberation struggle. Um, I think sometimes with Muslims in the la in the name of kind of this neoliberal post-religious world, the state is excused from taking responsibility for Islamophobia. Like, as you said earlier, this is a structural issue. You and I are expected to somehow deal with the treatment of extremism in the public sphere where Islamophobes are treated in the private sphere. You understand what I'm trying to say? And... I feel that Obama, with a smile on his face and the nice words that he said in Cairo, I was there that day um, that he gave the Cairo mm. speech. Our exams were canceled in Ezhard so people could listen. And then you talk about the tale of the two mosques. I don't think Muslims understand that the Obama administration, and, and I've never heard really anyone uh, on the left admit that there are structural issues of Islamophobia that are beyond the private sector. They're in the government of this country. Yeah. And, and what I got from what you said is that this is problematic. If we're going to restrict the hatred, anti-Muslim bias to the private world, private sector, but then treat the Muslims as a public problem, well, then the government is somehow complicit in Islamophobia. Am I correct? Yeah, I think, I think the state is complicit in a range of ways, whether in a proactive way whereby they're enacting and enforcing laws that are inherently Islamophobic, Patriot Act, NCERS. Uh, SARS, uh, counter-radicalization, and so on. But there's also a reactive sort of idle endorsement the state has with regard to what private Islamophobes are doing with uh, the under-investigation, under-prosecution of hate crimes, right? So it's, it's not enough. You've you got to establish purpose or intent when a private Islamophobe is attacking a Muslim, which is a really difficult threshold legally. I teach, you know, I teach law, so I can tell you that proving intent and purpose is really difficult to prove. Mm. But, but, but back to the Obama administration, I think what was really challenging, I mean, what was really uh, revealing about that administration is that just as long as a, a president that we sort of deem to be progressive and that we kind of put our guard down because Obama is the first black president and somebody whose rhetoric is so beautiful and his skills uh, as an orator are so, are so exceptional, he engages in this really sort of dissonant relationship with Islam, right? He gives these beautiful uh, speeches like uh, he gave in, in Cairo in 2009. You heard them. You were there. Um, which the rhetoric of them are so overwhelming that you believe that this individual is being accepting, tolerant, um, and embracing of Muslims both domestically here in the United States, but also abroad, right? And he, sort of, he invokes sort of, universal so much that you feel like he agrees with you. Exactly. And if you Sorry were to kind of break down... If you were to break down the thesis of that speech um, that he gave at Azad, it was effectively it was effectively that the United States or his administration is looking to mend the wounds 
of the really uh, you know turbulent eight years of the the Bush administration. Mm. It's a new day, effectively, right, with his with his administration. So because you put your guard down, and we put our guard down, especially on the left, uh, that we want to love and revere a figure like Obama. Uh, it sort of disables us to be critical of the the sort of clandestine clandestine policies that he's uh, enacting and expanding. So in my opinion, I think counter-radicalization policing CBE is the most perilous form of structural Islamophobia, hmm. right? For so a number, ex- of, you see it as an extension of Islamophobia. Oh, definitely. I think that it's it's structural Islamophobia and its most archetypal uh, embodiment. CBE is. I think CBE is more destructive than the Patriot Act. I think CBE has a, a far uh, broader impact than uh, even the travel bans. Why do you say so, that? Uh, the reason I say that is uh, for a couple of reasons. I think second, it, it clearly encroaches on the most seminal of civil liberties that we hold as citizens, which is the free exercise clause. Mm, exactly. Right. Um, and not only that, but basically individuals who maximize or optimize their free exercise of uh, religion, practicing Islam, are suspected of being homegrown radicals. So. If a young, if a young, a young Muslim man decides to wear a beard or wear traditional clothing, um, there is the sort of correlation that's that's that conservative expression of Muslim identity is somehow tied to radicalization, hmm. right? If a young sister decides to wear the hijab or more conservative uh, conservative iterations of covering, the presumption is that she is tied to some sort of radicalization. And there's interesting sort of feminist tropes that are applied or feminine tropes that are applied to terrorism, right? Um, with the terror trope. But in addition to that, MM, it's the idea that we're going to use Muslims to spy on Muslims. Hmm. Divide right? and conquer. Exactly. So it's a divide and conquer strategy. We're going to we're going to recruit and enlist Muslims to function as informants, data gatherers, uh, watchdogs at masajid, at MSAs, at community centers, and things of that nature. So it's most destructive because it's turning individuals who should be united against one another. For a range of incentives, whether it be financial, political, professional, and so on. Powerful. Now, we 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 have a lot we could talk about because the book is mashallah. It's not just mashallah. It's like mashallah, subhanallah. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but but something I think that that gets lost in this discussion um, is the intersectionality of race and Islamophobia. Um, as a white man in America, looking at Islamophobia, I see it as also an extension of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Would you not agree with that? Would you nuance that? I, I see some of the, you talked about the idea of presumptions and assumptions. And you know, it's interesting, the Prophet said, right? be careful of having assumptions about people. That Islamophobia is rooted in a set of constructions and presumptions about us as Muslims. Um, I see some of the similar presumptions in white supremacy that I see in Islamophobia directed mm-hmm. at our community. Yeah, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with you that Islamophobia is closely tied. It's, it's deeply tied to white supremacy in a range of interesting ways. You know, again, to the earlier statement I made that uh, the construction of racial identity is um, not only tied to phenotype or to how individuals look, but how they believe, right? So because Islam is viewed is viewed to be a uh, you know sort of antithetical to whiteness, and Christianity is central to whiteness, right? Christianity functions as a portal toward whiteness for a whole host of uh, groups that are European, but also non-Europeans. If you look at Levantine Christians, for instance, who migrated here 
um, in the early uh, 20th century. Much of them have effectively blended into whiteness, right? Mm. As, as a consequence of the religious identity. So they have the utility we, through the religious identity. Exactly. So the religious identity has a utility um, in terms of it functioning as a gateway into whiteness. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that still holds true today. So, for instance, you see a whole host of Arab Christians when they're being identified, uh, you know, as Middle Eastern or asked, are you Muslim? Oftentimes, the first thing they do is to say that they're Christian. Right. And that effectively puts the guard down of the state or puts the guard down of a, uh, of a hate monger. Um, where, again, Christianity, uh, you know, effectively functions as a um, a get free card, if you will, from profiling uh, or backlash. Hmm. So in white supremacy is also structural. So when we look at the Naturalization Act, um, which we talked about a bit earlier, that prevailed from 1790 to 1952, whiteness stood as a prerequisite for citizenship, for naturalized citizenship. Mm. You had you had to persuade either the uh, the border patrol agent at Ellis Island and other ports of entry or civil court judges that you were in fact white to be eligible for naturalized citizenship. Mm. Had to do it, right? Um, and, and and there we see how white supremacy is closely tied to othering individuals um, based on how they look, but also how they believe. Muslims couldn't be white because Islam was being racialized at that juncture for 162 years as a racial identity that could not be reconciled with whiteness. It was inassimilable. Right, right, right. You know, I go to Starbucks sometimes and I tell them that my name is Muhammad. I'm not going to Starbucks now, by the way. Um, oh, because at, of what happened in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, right? But when they call my name and, you know, they say, Muhammad, Muhammad, and I walk up there, I've had people ask me, like, how did you get that name? Like, how are you? Yeah. How is your name Muhammad? Like, how is this possible? This is illogical. And I do it on purpose, um, just to start that conversation with people. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up too, because because Islam and Muslim identity is sort of racially constructed in the narrow image of Arab or South Asians, or I hate using the term, but Middle Eastern, hmm. folks struggle to see white Muslims as legitimate or bona fide Muslims. Yeah, you and, know, and, Megyn Kelly criticized me and said, he's not even from a Muslim country. Exactly. And then, but it's also true for black Muslims, right? Most definitely. So the idea that white, white Muslim kind of functions as a contradiction is a consequence as to how whiteness and Islam has been racialized in this country. That's also true for black Muslims. Mm. So black Muslims are oftentimes asked, are you from the nation of Islam, right? R Viewing them as like Orthodox Sunni Muslims is almost an impossibility as a consequence of how blackness and Muslim identity has been racially constructed by American courts. Or when did also, you convert? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Or you're presumed to be a revert. Mm. So so here's a question, and, and we're going to kind of go all over the place with this. Forgive me, I'm not a professional interviewer. No, um, this is fun. But, but let me ask you this. So if a post-racial, post-religion Obama era now is used oftentimes to, you know, kind of exclude the state from anti-black acts, anti-Muslim acts. Within the Muslim community at times, and we talk about the struggle of black American Muslims, colorblindness in the name of being one ummah is often used to dismiss the concerns of black American Muslims about how blackness is seen and engaged and understood within the Muslim community. 
And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I've seen that where, you know, we're all one right? So in the name of not starting fitna, in the name of upholding the fact that we are a colorblind community, uh, I feel that that is a, a way to reduce and kind of ziplock the moment of having very important conversations with black American Muslims about their struggles with the construction of blackness in the Muslim community. And you mentioned Canada as an example. Yeah. Oh, the incident in Canada. Right. Yeah. Uh, I got in trouble for including that in the book. But well, I, I got in trouble for being in Canada. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let, let's we can expand it beyond that. I'll ask a question. I've asked mosques across the country. Why don't mosques have Black Lives Matter signs in front of the mosque? Mm. It's a great question. Um, you know what's interesting about this conversation? I think that you can sort of compare the way the right has used the rhetoric, you know, this colorblind, uh, this colorblindness rhetoric um, that MLK made, Martin Luther King made during his famous I Have a Dream speech um, to sort of project this idea that the United States should, uh, you know, should, should veer toward colorblindness, which sort of silences um, movements addressing past and present racism, right? Mm. The sort of myth that we've kind of moved into a colorblind post-racial appropriating appropriating his message exactly but there's also there's also a similar sort of move made with uh sayyidina muhammad's last sermon peace and blessings upon him used by muslims appropriating that language to sort of silence the same sort of um you know anti-racist um movements and interventions made within the muslim community Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. I think what's what's beautiful about Islam and what sets Islam apart is that it's it's the only it's the only uh, of the three Abrahamic faiths that has an explicit condemnation of racism. Indeed, right. You don't have and the sons of Ham in our exactly. theology, right? Hmm. Exactly. So, it's racial justice is central to Islam, right? So, why are Muslims so scared to have this conversation, especially within the American Muslim community? You mentioned that you rated. Uh, a, a, a gathering of leaders, right? Because there was no black voices present. Um, yeah. Why, why is it if this is so integral to who we are, whether it's a Shia who under the, the, the name of Hussein is standing up, you know, for justice, whether it's a Sunni who's, you know, taking the justice of Sayyidina Omar, why is there a fear? Like Public Enemy talked about a fear of a, ba- a black planet. It seems to be that there's a fear of a black ummah. Yeah, you know, I mean, this it's a complex discussion that we can go in many directions with, but I think obviously anti-black racism is pervasive. You know what I mean? Mm. Not only in Arab Muslim communities, uh, South Asian Muslim communities, but many of the mainstream Muslim American institutions um, that I support, that I'm a, um, that I go to conferences for, that I oftentimes speak at, um, and I, I that's something we can't deny. And then I think organizations like Muslim Ark. Um, and other scholars and academics and activists have have brought to the fore in the last couple of years. But I think it's more than that, to be honest with you. I think it's built upon anti-black racism, but I think that there's almost a, not almost, but there's there's a really robust desire, and there's class dimensions involved too, to be frank with you, Imam. Hmm. Um, there's strong desire in the part of many 
mainstream Muslim American organizations and communities um, that are obviously aspiring toward whiteness. Right. But sort of see the radical um, message coming from movements like BLM and coming from black Muslim institutions as being, to be frank with you, barriers in the way of their upward mobility or barriers. White utility. Exactly. Or being or, or, or wanting inclusion into the state, wanting access to power. Hmm. You know, a critical politic that comes from BLM, if, if we integrate that in, into places like ISNA, um, MSAs and so on, um, that's going to prove to be problematic for individuals wanting to become um, employees for the State Department, the DOD, get invited to White House of Thoughts and so on. Can you build on that? Yeah, so I mean, making be, making Black Lives Matter a focal sort of um, you know mandate within mainstream Muslim organizations. And what is Black Lives Matter, right? It's it's an intervention that is questioning the idea, um, or asserting very uh, aggressively the idea that the that structures, institutions that prevail today, um, are systematically anti-black, mm. right? More than just you know police violence, what's unfolding in places like Ferguson, Chicago, St. Louis, and so on. Uh, but the carceral state. Um, but what's going on with the school to prison pipeline? Mm. Um, what's going on with the retrenchment of affirmative action? Right. The entire agenda of issues that is central to BLM um, is sort of inimical to the um, you know assimilationist. Um, I'm a good citizen. Pull myself up by my, my bootstraps narrative that many mainstream Muslim organizations have accepted. Uh, they don't want to reform the state. These organizations don't generally, right? They want to play by the rules of the state to gain entry. And that is entirely antithetical to the objective of radical movements like BLM. So there's an ideological conflict there. And that's why organizations like this aren't creating avenues for them to be included. And the the idea of sincerity in Islam is, is put to question now. Um, I'm being good, why? Right. So if being good is synonymous with being white, then my goodness is suspect. Right. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm turning my back on on people who are impacted um, by very, very difficult situations and policies and procedures mm-hmm. for the name of utility. Where Prophet Muhammad was asked, we'll make you a king. What do you say? No, I'm good. Yeah. We'll make you rich. No, I'm good. I, I'm not trying. That's not what I'm here for. And I think sometimes we forget that uh, as a community. That's deep. I, I appreciate that. Let's let's also talk um, about your mother, man. Uh, I lost my mother probably a year and a half ago. I say my mother was the best Muslim I ever knew, even though she wasn't Muslim. Um, and you you tend to in your in your in your book talk about the importance of your mother raising you, sacrificing for you. You feeling in college, I was moved by when you talked about your your notions were not really to hang out with people of affluency, but like, how are you going to help your mother? Can you talk about how that relationship really has impacted who you are and your dedication to justice? No, definitely. I, I, I think that, um, so, you know, I reflect back on, you know, me coming up as a kid. I wasn't like, you know, the best student. I didn't do well in high school. Um, you know, I wasn't one of these, like my trajectory, you know, was a turbulent one, right? Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm really shocked and surprised that I'm doing what I'm doing today. Because if you were to ask me 15, you know, 12 years ago, I would have told you, hell no. Like, um, I could, I could never imagine that I'm at where I'm at today. Wow. Uh, And I could tell you there was one moment, um, 
you know, I flunked freshman year of high school. Um, I failed like nine out of the 12 classes. I had to go to summer school um, at Cody High School, really rough school in the city. Um, and it was the first time where I was a, uh, you know, Dearborn is heavily out of, right? So my high school fortune was majority out of. Mm. Uh, I was in a school that was 99% black. And that was really instructive in terms of developing my racial consciousness. But I remember coming home one day and uh, we had just moved to a new house. We moved roughly, I think, 10 times um, during my first, uh, my, my 18 years growing up. And my mom, like, seeing her struggle with the jobs that she had, and for me, succeeding in school, you know, was not like an intellectual sort of personal pursuit. It was sort of a, a, a pathway to be able to help my mom financially. MashaAllah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah. alhamdulillah, like, you know, I was, I mean, my mom was like my role model. She worked really hard. Um, she worked odd jobs. She had a, uh, a store in the city where she was um, making Islamic wear for women. Um, several, she had a dollar store before they were popular. She worked at a laundromat. So, you know, my, my father wasn't, he wasn't the ideal father. So my mother had to wear both hats. And my sister also functioned as a second parent. But, you know, seeing her like grind and seeing all the glitch she had, you know, provided me with a work ethic um, and really inspired me to want to do something with my life so I can help her. MashaAllah. May Allah bless her. All right, let's, let's close it up. I'm going to ask you kind of three questions um, that I think your book kind of leads the reader to ask and one of them is what do you think the future of american islamophobia is you know i think i think islamophobia is gonna gonna follow this really turbulent fluid uh sort of direction where much of it is contingent upon who controls the administration if it's a democratic administration led by um a cory booker or uh, a hillary clinton we're going to see the same sort of championing of accepting rhetoric, like neoliberal sort of rhetoric, hmm. um, but simultaneously the expansion of really destructive surveillance policies like CBE. Um, if it's conservative administrations, there's going to be explicit appeals um, to you know Islamophobic stereotypes and tropes like we see with Trump and the expansion of problematic policy. I think that's going to be the case for the next, I don't know, 40 to 50 years. Hmm. Hmm. So the second question would be then, what do you think is the most important thing strategically Muslims can do to counter um, whether it's, you know, it seems to me that, you know, a democratic administration is going to discipline private Islamophobia, but structural Islamophobia is going to run wild in a much more salient way with a smile on its face. Or a conservative administration who kind of lessens the scope of private Islamophobia uh, and continues really aggressive uh, structural programming. Yeah. What What is the best thing we can do, and how can we counteract uh, these kind of whether it's the right or the left? Because one of the things that comes out of your book that's powerful is that someone on the left can be Islam an Islamophobe, and someone on the right can be Islamophobe. Bill Maher <laughs> is a classic Islamophobe. Yeah. Um, so and a damaging. What, I mean, a, a very damaging one too. Oh yeah, because he's he's got a smile on his face. Yep. Um, Joe Rogan, on his show, yep. continually, you know, has very negative things to say about Islam and Muslims while using humor, but doesn't have any Muslim guests on his show. Um, yeah. And I love his show because I'm a big like boxing and MMA fan. So yeah, the yeah, yeah. of boxing and MMA is great. It's amazing, right? <laughs> Michael Rappaport, uh, yeah. 
you know, who for those of us Generation Xers who like it a little bit more Pete Rock and DJ Premier and Gangstar than, say, Drake. Yep. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, he was like, yo, that ish is all burkaed out. And, you know, demeans the burka. What do you think we strategically should focus on as a community to insulate and protect ourselves and then also to counteract Islamophobia? I think two, but they're tied. The first thing is we have to be really assertive, emphatic, aggressive about uh, talking about Islamophobia as a structural system in the same way that we talk about racism, right? So the idea that individual racism can be solved is, um, is, is sort of problematic but we shift and focus on institutional racism. Racism is something that's deeply embedded. We got to make that same maneuver with Islamophobia to say that it's deeply embedded, it's structural, it's systemic, um, that sort of survives administration um, and is, is long lasting. And that's tied to the idea that I think that um, this country is shifting to obviously a majority minority country. I think as Muslims, we have to be less insular. I think we've historically been insular where we've maybe done a good job mobilizing and organizing within our communities. But really, we really have to build with other marginalized communities, specifically communities of color, um, to deliver our message because Islamophobia is tied to structural xenophobia. It's clearly tied to anti-black racism mm. and so on, that we have to make these connections in very trenchant ways and sort of broaden our coalition uh, to withstand what's going to come. The second question that I'm going to ask you is, who do you think is the greatest recipient of Islamophobia in the Muslim community? Who is most impacted by it? What demographic? Yeah, so pri- so private Islamophobia, I think it's going to be, it's Muslim women. Exactly. Um, v- visibly um, Muslim women, and ironically enough, probably Sikh men. Mm, yes. And, and, and Structural Islamophobia, it's, it's, it's male Muslims. Um, because the terrorism trope is sort of characterized or caricatured as masculine, right? Mm. So CVE is centrally focusing in on largely young, adolescent, 20-something Muslim males and Sunnis, right? Radicalization is framed as a Sunni phenomenon by the state. Mm. Mm. And the last question that I wanted to touch on is what can Muslim communities do um, to address the anti-racism, uh, the, the anti-black racism? that that pervades in our community i don't i don't think you know i think dr yeah. sherman jackson's book is brilliant um he's a brilliant scholar i think mark manley's a great imam very brilliant um his wife of course and what they're doing at muslim arc mm-hmm. um sister suad who's most you know is amazing but i don't think that people understand sometimes they may be uninvested carriers of anti-black racism within the Muslim community. They're just not aware. The idea of wakefulness, right? Being woke. Yeah. What advice, if you were talking to a nonprofit, okay, you're talking to a nonprofit who approaches you and says, listen, we want to take this seriously. We want to be able to acknowledge this challenge and then deal with this challenge and try to address this challenge as best we can as a constant, not as something that, like, white privilege in my life can never end. That's something that I always have to be aware of, right? And and we'll make mistakes. John Abrams writes about this brilliantly. I think institutions and communities can't think that racism suddenly stops, but what can they do to address it for our black Muslim brothers and sisters? Yeah, I think I think we're sort of at a dangerous crossroads in the way that 
um, race and racism and racial justice is sort of discussed and talked about today in the United States, to be honest with you, hmm. and specifically from the left, right? I think that there's this idea and this idea of wokeness, being woke, um, is satisfied simply by use of progressive or radical rhetoric, hmm. right? That if you say the right things, um, if you, you know, proclaim the right slogans, um, if you have the right friends, then that effectively makes you, you know, anti-Islamophobic or anti-black. Mm. But but there's something material, right? If, if our objective is to retrench and dismantle anti-blackness, there's an economic material component that's critical, right? And by that, I mean that we, we have to uplift. We ha- not only uplift, we have to create spaces, inroads um, for black Muslim voices to not only speak on issues that pertain to them, but to also speak on issues that pertain to us broadly as Muslims. Right. We shouldn't we shouldn't niche black Muslim voices or specialize them to specifically speak on um, issues that are salient to black Muslims. They're Muslims. They can speak on all Muslim issues. It's like me being asked to speak on convert issues all the time. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And and there's no need of intellectual powerhouses. You've named many of them who can effectively speak on a range of issues uh, that they're the lead experts to speak on. Dr. Saad is one of them. Right. And she has this beautiful quote. I'm always uh, tweeting it. Uh, don't be a voice for the voiceless. Just pass the mic, mm. right? <laughs> and then, beautiful. beautiful. And yeah, exactly. That that beautifully sort of like highlights what needs to be done. And you and have think- you have Sherman who's sitting on you know fatwa councils in Egypt, right? Yeah. He's not sitting on the fatwa council in Egypt to talk about issues of race. He's sitting on that council because he's a scholar that can speak on a host of issues. And, and uh, yeah, converts feel this way a lot, Achi. I've heard Mark Manley say, you know, conversion is an event. I converted in 16 seconds. Like, I have another life besides conversion. Yeah. And, so that I, I think that's very profound. Just engaging people because they're people. You know? Exactly. <laughs> that, that's no, deep. I think, I, think, I, think it's, I think we can do it on an individual level, like you and I, other individuals, you know, tries, you know, as best as possible, create inroads, mentor, and so on. But it has to be institutions, universities, our own Muslim civic organizations, student organizations, to really create space. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I think the rhetoric is there now, and that's promising. But until the rhetoric really translates to, uh, you know, really material, economic, institutional change, um, then the rhetoric's not going to do much, you know? Mm. Yeah. That's the frightening thing about this, this like, whole neoliberal moment. Is that it's fashion. Exactly. It's like being woke is kind of like uh, a new pair of Nikes. You know what I mean? Like the new pair of Jordans. And it's like it's like being a Salih is to wear a thobe and a turban and burn incense and you've done it. Mazboot. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Now, I actually have one more question. Sorry. Um, and that is I have noticed within the religious community, meaning you know, content providers, imams, mashaykh, a, a leeriness to partner with people who, like yourself, maybe are critical race theorists, um, people who are engaged in BLM, uh, people who, like Brother Tahir, who's out here, you know, we saw in Durham, North Carolina last week, um, they passed this 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 bill that they're not going to allow their police force to be trained by Israeli police force. Uh, mm. He told me on the phone, not one imam would sign that. Wow. Um, why do you think there is a leeriness, a leeriness um, or why do you think there? Why do you think there's an aversion of religious leadership 
to engage social justice movements, social justice leaders, critical race theorists, people who are working for BDS. And at times we're seeing Muslim leadership even quote people like Ben Shapiro, Mm. um, aligning themselves like Justin Peterson in Canada, who Mm. are carrying some very problematic attitudes towards the Muslim community and towards humanity. Why do you think that is? Why is there that aversion, that fear, that concern? I think there's a number of like stimuli or catalysts. One of them might be fear, right? That these religious leaders, these imams sort of want to play the assimilation game because they're concerned with backlash. They're concerned with perhaps being surveilled by the state. That sort of, you know, wedding themselves to the good, the quote unquote moderate Muslim identity, um, you know, might diminish or mitigate the prospect of being surveilled by the state or being attacked by hate mongers, especially in rural areas, right, um, where Muslims are sort of conspicuous and stand out and there isn't much support. I found traveling the country, and you know, you've traveled the country too, that fear in these places tends to be a bit more amplified, right? Mm. I experienced when I was an imam in Boston. I was yeah. spooked. I got shook like mob deep. Um, <laughs> and, no, but it happens. And, and that's the challenge of, of leadership. Yeah. You know? Hmm. Wait, did that... Did that happen when Boston adopted the uh, the CVE program? So our mosque didn't adopt CVE. No, but the city. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there when that went down. Um, I think my situation was amplified by the Boston bombing and just the amount of pressure that the neocons just pushed on me, man. Um, mm. it, it was, and I think that's something that people don't realize. Like I had to go to a therapist, man. Mm. You know, when you when you have Fox News. You know, basically using language around you that's going to encourage people to physically harm you. And the Sunni Muslim community doesn't have any fruit of Islam. Huh? Yeah. So you don't have anyone to protect you. And and you've got, you know, my mother was getting phone calls in Oklahoma. Um, that stuff can mess with you, man. That stuff can get you shook. Yeah, and Boston's a rough city. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, you, guys, you guys got different sorts of bigots up there. One of the most racially divided cities I've ever seen in my life is Boston. Yeah. I think it's a, a, sec, a second sort of catalyst is the idea that look, they're, they're, you can get paid. You can make, you can make money. <laughs> can you hook it up? You can, you can make money you know, saying the right things as a religious leader, whether by way of CBE grants, whether by way of you know, having access to the state, getting invited to give these talks you know, and being sprinkled a huge amount of honorarium. Mm. We saw it, you know, obviously after 9-11, I'm not going to name names, but some of them here locally um, built a pretty prominent profile Mm. by, you know, effectively qualifying as consultants for the Bush administration. Got it. Um, And that's also had today. You know, it's playing the game, being a good, moderate religious leader, um, you know, not talking to people like me and other activists (laughs) and black lives. Lloyd talks about domesticating concerns of race and religion. Yeah. For access. Mm. And there's also there's also some Muslim traditions and, you know, I'm not going to make a uh, a, a normative assessment of them that view themselves to be apolitical. Right. Right. Especially in the in the Sunni tradition. Exactly. Especially in the Sunni tradition where they just they just want to worship and they don't see Islam as being politicized and they don't see a sort of community or philanthropic aim. uh, Deriving from faith. And I I can respect that. You know, people can have their, their, their distinct interpretation um, but then don't be so political with your apolitical positions. You understand what I'm trying to say? 
Yeah, it's like, kind of it's it's a naive position, I think. You know what I mean? But then people make it political. They they make it political towards the community. Yeah. Right. So you're wrong for being political, but I'm apolitical. But you just took a political position by telling me to be apolitical. Exactly. <laughs> no, being, being apolitical, especially as a Muslim in America today, is a very acute political position. Mm. Well, Malcolm said you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Exactly. Mazboot, yep. Any any other reasons why you think that may be? I've noted that some may feel that leftist movements threaten the foundations of faith. Yeah. Threaten, you know, the idea of heathenry that sometimes is associated with the left. Do you think there's a sweet spot that can be found for Muslims who may be on the right or may be on the left? There's going to be some challenges. And I think, you know, as a as a thinker, as kind of a, I guess, a scholar, I'm really intrigued by what's going to happen with the left sort of embrace of, uh, of Muslim Americans and sort of this embrace of Islamophobia as a mainstream social justice issue hmm. after the Trump moment. Right. Because because we know what the cornerstones of the left movement are. And one of them is this whole issue around LGBTQ identity. Mm. You, you write know, about that. Yeah, you talk about that in the book. Yeah, I talk I talk a bit about that. But I think a real concern coming from Muslims is, you know, how much do we have to placate and appease the left uh, to be considered bona fide um, progressives? Uh, how do we negotiate our entrance into the left? Mazboot, exactly. Mm. And if, if it if it conflicts with, you know, sort of foundational um, Islamic principles, then you don't want to. Then we're getting into the same sort of mess that Zodi Jasser is talking about reforming Islam from the left. Mm, mm, mm. Agreed, agreed. Well, this has been amazing, man. I know that you're going to be going on kind of a tour, I believe. Any spots that you want to let people know about that you're going to be at in the coming weeks? Yeah, so inshallah, I'm going to LA this weekend doing the LA Times Book Fair. I'm doing the Care. LA dinner on Saturday, inshallah. Long Beach State on Monday. Um, Atlanta on May 9th. Indianapolis. Uh, New York. So I'll be coming to your neck of the woods, inshallah. Wee, 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 wee. <laughs> May 24th. I already know the date. May 24th at yep. NYU. Yep. We're just. Was, was those like the DJ, the DJ Clue horns? <laughs> that was Jay Dilla because you're from Detroit. Oh, <laughs> I had to give you some Jay Dilla since you're from Detroit. I'll let you know. <laughs> Hey, there are some statements that he may have, you know, uh, accepted because he was part of the Ummah in the 90s with Q-Tip and them. But Allah knows best. Allah knows best. So a funny story, a quick story about Jay Dillon, man, is that he used to go to this mat'am on Warren Cedarland. I'm sure you've been to it. Oh, man, they have the best fatouche, bro. Yeah, they have great fatouche. They've kind of fallen off. I've heard they got condemned or something, yeah. (laughs) Their adas was off the on on the point, on point, too. (laughs) Their shirt adas is top now. All right. I like to end the NAS, though. End the NAS with the spot. Oh, yeah. End the NAS off the hook. Yep. But Jay Dilla used to, he used to love Cedarland, man. What? Yeah. He used to be in Cedarland. He used to go to Cedarland, like, I think, um, he used to frequent it often. Wow. Wow. He yeah. may have constructed donuts in his mind in Cedarland. <laughs> what an album. What a what a talent. You know, what, what yeah. a talent. So, anywhere people can pick up the book, where's the spot they can grab it? I really want to encourage people to buy the book, read it perhaps start study circles around it. Hopefully you can give people like a curriculum in the future to kind of look at the book and use the book in halakas and study circles. Any spots where they can pick it up? Yeah, so the book is everywhere. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can pick it up at Barnes & Noble. Um, you know, everywhere that books are sold, it's definitely available. It hasn't been PDF'd illegally yet, has it? No, no, but I'm sure some... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrible, I might get to it really quick. 
Hey, man. Alhamdulillah, it has been a, a blessing uh, to speak with you, man. And I really appreciate your time. I know that you're really busy. Um, and I really hope that, you know, imams, students of knowledge like myself, folks like you can really start to, to create some important relations um, because we need to learn and hear from each other um, and, and to be informed about very serious challenges that we face as a community. Um, but also opportunities, too. I think that, you know, I try to look at what's happening now in some in, in a positive light, too. Almost definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So Barakalafik, anything else you want to share with people before we let it go? No, support this podcast. Imam Suhab Web is doing great things. So tune in. Appreciate you, brother. Barakalafik. <laughs> Mashallah.